Oh, hi. I'm your host, Kyle Brownrigg, and welcome to Best Actress, discussing Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress Oscar wins, who we feel should have won, and why. Hello and welcome to another episode of Best Actress. Today we're going to be talking about the 1941 ceremony year win for Ginger Rogers. This was a very significant win for her, a bit of a surprise, especially since she said so in her Oscar acceptance speech. Um, Today we're joined by uh, one of my favorite guests. I'm so happy that he was able to make some time to be part of this. You've heard him before. He was a writer on Schitt's Creek and he's here for you now. It's Dan Dillabo. Hi, Dan. Hello. Thanks for having me back. Of course, I always love having you on here and you always select the, uh, you know, the classic Hollywood movies, which I love because most of my guests uh, so seldom pick the older movies. And I love to watch the older movies to see if there's something in here that I love that maybe I hadn't considered before. And there were definitely a few this year that I'm going to recommend as we go on. But why did you pick uh, Ginger Rogers for Kitty Foyle? This was a good one. Yeah, I was just looking at the list. I mean, it's kind of a, a real murderer's row in this lineup. You've got, yeah, Ginger Rogers, Betty Davis, uh, Catherine Hepburn. I mean, usually when you look at these old Best Actress nominees, it's like maybe there's one that you've heard of and mm-hmm. the others have kind of been lost to the sands of time. But this was this was a really solid year. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm just look, looking at the, the nominees this year. I mean, a lot of people talk about 1939 as being like a real great banner year in film history but this was great too i mean you've got um the grapes of wrath uh philadelphia story is a classic rom-com mm-hmm. uh, there's two hitchcock movies in the mix um, yep this was his yeah. first oscar nomination for best director for rebecca first and only win also which is bananas to think that this was this was the hitchcock movie that got him his oscar uh you got the great dictator which is a beloved charlie chaplin movie Mm-hmm. Um, and then not even nominated this year, but His Girl Friday also came out in 1940, which is like iconic um, screwball comedy, also with Cary Grant, who we're going to talk about later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's my pick for snub of the year. Um, oh, but yeah. Uh, yeah, there's lots of good stuff. Um, it's a real, real fun year. It is. I mean, <clears throat> so I've, I've, the only movie in this list that I had seen before was The Letter because I went through like a bit of a Betty Davis phase once I started getting into classic Hollywood, which of We've course all been Betty Davis. Yeah, right. She's kind of like the the gateway uh, to <laughs> classic Hollywood. So best picture this year went to Rebecca and best director went to John Ford for Grapes of Wrath. Best actor went to James Stewart for Philadelphia Story. But he always said that he felt that um, it was really just a consolation for his loss of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. And he always felt that Henry Fonda should have won for the Grapes of Wrath over mm. his performance in the Philadelphia story. Uh, Best Supporting Actor went to Walter Brennan for uh, The Westerner, and Best Supporting Actress went to Jane Darwell for The Grapes of Wrath. I've never seen The Grapes of Wrath, but this sounds like a very popular movie. It's good. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, the book definitely is is very famous. Um, and this, uh, the movie, I, it's been so long since I've seen it, but I remember it being a little bit chipper and like more upbeat than the book. Mm. which is i think it's a a theme a recurring theme of a lot of these movies that we're going to talk about um that that were based on uh novels is that this was the hayes code era of hollywood Mm -hmm. uh i don't know i can't remember if we talked about this on the show but uh there was this was like in the 30s uh it was kind of decided that the that the pictures were having uh, maybe a bad influence on the youth that they were promoting loose morals. Right. Uh, and so they had to crack down on, 
on anything kind of salacious in the movies. And so the Hayes office basically would police all the scripts. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there were all these rules about, um, you know, y- y- characters couldn't commit adultery or commit crimes, you know, and if they did, they had to be punished afterwards to show that this is, you know, you can't do this stuff and get away with it. Like Betty Davis. Um, yeah, the, exactly. And I love that you brought that up because when we do talk about Betty Davis in the letter, uh, we'll talk about the ending and why it was changed because of this code. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Quickly, before we get into it, I was just, just scanning through the Wikipedia article for the Oscars this year. Uh, there were three, there were categories for uh, best original screenplay, best screenplay and best story. Uh, oh. That's very chaotic. And yeah. <laughs> uh, in the category of best original score, there were 17 nominees. What? Uh, truly a bananas year. <laughs> like for five films or 17 people? 17 different movies. What? <laughs> yeah. It's really wild. There, it was really just the Wild West back then. Yeah. Well, they had they used to have ties back in the day, never for acting. I think the one that everyone remembers, of course, is the one where Barbara Streisand and Katherine Hepburn won for Funny Girl and The Lion in Winter. But mm-hmm. uh, back in the day, like people could tie for like, oh, God, what was it? There was one that was like for a documentary short and it was never like the, you know, the big glamorous categories. But there had been ties in the 1930s and, and or was it the first Academy Awards that there was a tie? But regardless, back in the early days of the Academy, a tie was not unheard of. Not like today. And you also had you had like maybe a dozen people voting on them. Top. I mean, now the Academy is like, you know, 10,000 plus people. So it would right. be crazy if a tie happened today. Right. And I think the biggest uh, voting uh branch is the acting mm-hmm. uh i believe to this day um okay well let us jump into our nominees and the first person that these are in no particular order i want to talk about is katherine hepburn in the philadelphia story so the reason why this nomination and uh i think that she probably expected to win for this film was so significant was because up until this point in her career katherine hepburn was labeled as box office poison and uh the general public saw her as a spoiled rich girl from i think connecticut is where she's from and uh the audience just never really felt like she was well cast for uh a lot of the movies that she was in and in the philadelphia story she's this high society perfectionist woman that realizes that Cary grant hates the perfectionist in people and so eventually you know she what has like a glass of wine or two or champagne and then suddenly she lets her hair she goes crazy yeah she gets yeah. a little bit tipsy yeah right and then oh we see flaws in her and then you know in the end Carrie Grant and she um get back together and like you said uh uh before we started recording that this is a classic rom-com and uh you know this is directed by George Cukor who is a great friend to hers because he's also gay uh, and I always love watching George Cukor uh, movies. I love watching Catherine Hepburn movies because I'm obsessed with her voice. Um, I'd never seen great this. voices, yeah. What else did yeah. Cukor do? Oh, doing? God. Well, he originally was uh, working on Gone with the Wind, and then he got... Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, he had gotten pushed out. Uh, but George Cukor, I mean, uh, was it My Fair Lady? Oh, yes, he directed he... My Fair Lady. Oh, wow. What a uh, what a 
uh, filmography. Yeah, The Star is Born, too. The 54 Star is Born. Yes, of course. Yes, yes, yes. And also, there was a movie with Maggie Smith that I talked about on this podcast, and she was nominated for it, and everyone was like, what the fuck? But did we watch this movie together? Was it you and I that watched it? I cannot remember. I'm drawing a blank. I'm just kind of skimming. Gaslight is, a, is another one of his. Oh, really? With Ingrid Bergman? Yeah. Well, see, he's just, you know, he's just a classic, you know, one of the greats. Um, so uh, the Philadelphia story is based on uh, the play by Philip Larry. I mean, quickly, the movie, what it's about is uh, <laughs> Carrie Grant and Catherine Hepburn are married at the very beginning. And then he like just kind of like face palms her like <laughs> assaults her. And then to the audience that suggests like, oh, they're divorced now. And then I guess uh, Catherine Hepburn, this high society woman's father, there's like an affair. So they want to this this uh, Philadelphia what, what it was like a news art uh, yeah, outlet. She's getting married to this kind of nouveau riche guy and uh, and her father has fallen into scandal. And so she basically has to agree to this thing where these these newspaper reporters are coming to cover the wedding and she has to put on a, a, a brave face and pretend that everything's OK you know, so that the article goes well, even as everything's falling apart. Uh, Jimmy yeah. Stewart plays the the journalist that's that's covering the wedding, and she ends up kind of falling for him. Uh, this is Jimmy Stewart <laughs> at his most drawliest. Yeah. <laughs> um, Raw and, city. And, you know, uh, so, but then in the end, like, she ends up with uh, Cary Grant. Also, uh, we yeah, discussed this. Back up with, uh, I don't want to be the guy who's, you know, complaining about the things in these old movies that haven't aged well because it's right. boring we all we get it that these movies are a product of their time but right. it is a little bit crazy i to- i saw this movie years ago and i totally forgot about this that the first joke in the movie is carrie grant and katherine hepburn are getting divorced mm-hmm. and he's like about to punch her in the face but then mm-hmm. thinks better of it and instead just grabs her by the face and violently shoves her <laughs> onto the floor and the music's like wah wah yeah, she's on the floor, like oh you <laughs> and then she takes a golf club with her She-Hulk strength and then breaks it in half over her leg. And you're yes. like, whoa. <laughs> like, So, you know, maybe, you know, she could, you know, throw down, you know. <laughs> oh, yeah, she could hold her on. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild it's a wild beginning to a uh, lighthearted rom-com for sure. Uh, but, yeah, ultimately it is like very funny and charming and, and very quippy and, and delightful. And she, you know, yeah, you mentioned that she was kind of perceived as sort of a a upper class hoity-toity and you know she kind of really leans into that uh and shows all the different uh sides of of her character yeah it's really interesting to see her kind of start from this place of a very high status iciness and then you see the layers peel away as she as she falls for jimmy stewart and it's very sweet it's genuinely like a sweet movie what's interesting i whenever i watch katherine hepburn i i just cannot wrap my mind around her characters ever because of the voice and that's just a personal thing like i understand that she has an incredible amount of talent she's a fantastic actress i mean she has the record for most oscar wins but literally like i just every time i see her perform especially like in old movies she's such a character it's Mm -hmm. not a person to me it's just such a character um which of course this is a 
what was kind of like the narrative of her 1930s career near the end of her 1930s career, uh, because she had won for Morning Glory. That was like her third film. So everyone had high hopes for her, but then they kind of got sick of her. But the reason why she was um, able to do this movie was because Howard Hughes, her like super rich boyfriend at the time, had actually gifted this uh, play and the rights to the film as a gift. And so she kind of um, figured that this role would be perfect for her because it is a narrative of like a really rich, perfect person that um, ultimately has to be, I guess, uh, a little bit more real and have flaws and, you know, drink the champagne and let her guard down and stuff like that. So I guess it was easier for the audience to identify with, which for Catherine Hepburn was an extremely smart decision on her part and mm, yeah, this really, really kind of leaning into and, and subverting her public persona a little bit exactly and uh she really wanted spencer tracy for uh the role that jimmy stewart played but uh he didn't he turned it down because he was really eager to make the movie dr jekyll and mr hyde okay. um in this film though specifically you know um i think that her character you just it's your typical sort of katherine hepburn style of acting you know she's a she's a stinker and she's uh always kind of gets her way but i think that for me the real acting uh is whenever she is um interacting with her father and she knows about the scandal and she's like trying her best to kind of keep everything afloat while also just kind of being like i know what you did and he's like how dare you talk to me this way but it's i find those are kind of the vulnerable moments that you see from her character um, I don't, I've never seen this movie before. I'll be honest with you. It wasn't really one of my faves. Um, but I can certainly understand the narrative at the time of why this was so significant to her career. Mm, yeah, it is. Uh, it, it's very, that, that sort of distinctive, um, mid-Atlantic accent, mm -hmm. uh, which is what it was called. It's, it's so, it's so charming. Uh, I, yeah, it's, it's very easy to kind of. Uh, see why she was such a big deal and why she is why people still talk about her as one of the greats she reminded me of um i don't know if you remember those snl sketches with Kristen wig where it's like the secret password yes. game show yes where, the, where they have to she's like the old, old sort of golden age of hollywood actress and she has to get the contestant to guess the word yeah. and she always just says the word immediately yeah the secret, the word secret word is, is. yeah <laughs> is, i know yeah watch this is i think maybe the first uh Hepburn movie I've I've seen it as soon as I watch it oh that's that's the secret password lady well I mean in this if you ever just look up SNL Kristen Wiig Catherine Hepburn she does a hilarious Catherine Hepburn impression where mm -hmm. she's on Vincent Price's like Christmas horror show and then she's like I cut down this tree and cut Madagat like she just does it perfectly <laughs> <laughs> she has a um, great uh the line that really made me laugh where they're talking about the boat that she and Cary Grant uh, had had made while they were married. She says she was Yar, wasn't she? Right. <laughs> Never yeah. explained what that means. I just like yeah, it. yeah. Very, I love I love it. Very charming, very quippy. Um, she's always changing costumes like multiple times in a scene. <laughs> She's a very calculated character. I mean, whenever uh, she was talking to the reporters, it's like she knew what was the underlying story that she, they were trying to report on her father and the the scandalous affair. So she kind of is a shit disturber. She's like, oh, are you two going to get married? Like, oh, why aren't you two married now? Because she's trying to 
pick away at them and she obviously is in complete control and the moment where she begins to lose control is whenever she's hung over and she can't remember anything and it's almost like her confidence is uh shaken a little bit because you know she knew that she had uh kissed uh jimmy stewart the night before her wedding and like that little girl knew and uh you know suddenly she's not the person who is like in charge of the chessboard anymore and when you see her sort of lose a bit of her confidence and her confidence is shaken i think that's also a really nice moment for her character and you see like a bit more of her uh range and she's not the perfect high society woman anymore and she, she had like really nice moments you know i just kind of didn't really understand why she and Cary Grant got back together in the end. I realized that was like the point of the movie. I just, I just didn't buy it. Well, you know what they, at this point, they didn't know that, that Hollywood endings were cliche because Hollywood had only been right. around for like a dozen years at this point. They didn't know that was just, it was just how things were done. Uh, yeah. It's, it's a tacked on ending for sure. But um, yeah, I, uh, I, I really feel like she, the, you know, the, the the scenes where you see her let her guard down, uh, they really the film really lets them play out in a really satisfying way. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of long, you know, dialogue scenes that are really give her a lot to chew on. And uh, yeah, she's great. The whole movie's great. No complaints from me. I mean, I think one of my favorite lines, uh, which again, this is a product of its time, and I'm not laughing at this specifically, but I just thought that this. I'm laughing at the fact that they thought that this was appropriate. I loved. He said. Uh, oh, you're a writer. I thought that writers drink to excess and beat their wives. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, yes. And then there also there was that uncle that was super rapey. Remember? Oh yes, the groping yeah. uncle. <laughs> they were like, they were like, oh yeah, the uncle that uh, the cousins wouldn't go in the pool with. I'm like, oh god. <laughs> These were you the know, stock were... characters of the time that are that now we realize we're all just sexual predators. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Um, okay, so do you have anything else that you would like to add to Catherine Hepburn's performance in the Philadelphia Story before we move on? Nope, A plus. Great. Okay, so let's talk about Betty Davis in the letter. So that's so interesting that you had talking that you were speaking about the Hayes Code because I was going to bring that up specifically in regard to this movie. Um, because uh, in the letter, Betty Davis is your typical sort of villainous woman who, at the very beginning murders the man that she's having an affair with and she's yeah, trying to get away with scene, eh? oh yeah and apparently that that scene took like two days to film it was like two minutes of an opening but it took like two days to film because uh director william wyler was such a perfectionist mm-hmm. um, so this is um we should set the, it's like a, a rubber plantation i think in yes in, uh, malaysia no and, in uh, uh, sumatra indonesia Sumatra, right okay um, and yeah, she, uh, it opens just, you know, she's, she comes out of the house with a gun and just shoots this guy in cold blood. Mm-hmm. It's great. It rules. Uh, you're it, right off to the races. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, the whole movie is about sort of her in a position of privilege, trying to get out of it by kind of manipulating everyone around her. And then you have that, um, villainous woman who was the wife of the man that she was having an affair with, who was in full yellow face. Uh, mm-hmm. and she is blackmailing Betty Davis and, uh, it's, it's just like a, it's just an amazing movie and, uh, definitely a classic one of Betty Davis's best. And, um, in the end, I will you know, say it does take a, take a turn after that opening scene. It just, it kind of descends into a pretty tepid, uh, legal drama. It does not quite match the intensity of the opening, but, uh, because but still there's lots of fun stuff to be found. 
Like, as in, like, because they're having these, like, long conversations on, like, Shay's lounges kind of thing? A little bit. It, it's it's very chatty. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, that is something that's so interesting that you say that because I felt the same way where I'm like, I guess that's just how they wrote dialogue back in the day where there was just a lot of fluff conversation. Mm-hmm. A little bit where you're like, wow, I don't care about this. Like, can we just move on? Um, but anyway, so you were talking about the Hayes Code. So in the original play, she lives. And according to the Hayes Code, they refuse to allow the film character to get away with adultery and murder. So that's why in the end she is killed. Yeah, you can't be murdering people. That's uh, no bueno. <laughs> um i think okay so uh in this film so william wyler actually tried to make leslie betty davis's character a lot more sympathetic and davis was absolutely horrified by this because she felt that she would lose the intelligent audience and they fought and they fought and they fought and eventually uh they did not change it and she was very relieved by this but apparently uh davis and wyler fought a lot on this movie because uh she and he were just such perfectionists of their craft. And then uh, whenever she did lose a fight to him, she would always say that she uh, lost to his genius. So they're just very pleased with themselves, these two. Can I share a, a tidbit I read on IMDb? Uh, director mm-hmm. Weiler and star Betty Davis had had an affair, which ended well before uh, the making of this movie, their third project together. Mm. Davis discovered herself pregnant during the first week of filming and unsure of the father kept it a secret and arranged for an abortion. Her third, a week later, she later told friends, I should have married Willie. Yeah. Oh my so God. There was a whole lot of stuff going on behind the scenes of this one that one could argue is more interesting than the movie itself. That's so, well, I mean, I wonder if she, if people ever knew about that back then, I'm assuming not because she still had a career. And of course, abortion was like unforgivable. Betty Davis had a very, I mean, tumultuous life behind the scenes. I mean, I'm, I'm, but I think by all accounts, she was very volatile and kind of an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And uh, her, I think it was her daughter or son, I can't remember, but uh, her daughter wrote a memoir it was of her mother's yeah. keeper. Mm-hmm. Would basically just kind of spilling all the tea about, you know, what a horrible mother she was and abusive and emotionally withholding and all this stuff. And then Betty Davis um, basically, you know, cut her out of the family uh, and, mm-hmm. you know, disowned her. Never spoke to her again. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, also, this was after uh, Christina Crawford released Mommy Dearest. So I think a lot of the public felt that her, Betty Davis, Abidi was her name. Uh, was just kind of jumping on the bandwagon and I read Betty Davis's second book. And I remember in the book at the end of it, they address this memoir that Beatty had written uh, my mother's keeper. And uh, basically the reviews were literally like one of them was from, I don't know, somebody at like, you know, the New York times or something. And basically just said like, shut up Beatty. And like, that's all they wrote. (laughs) So people weren't happy about that one. It didn't have the same impact as mommy dearest. Sure, understandable. And she never spoke to her again for the rest of her life until the day she died. So, Um, but talking about Betty Davis in the movie (laughs) The Letter, you know, (laughs) transition. Uh, You know, I. It's just Betty Davis, like at her best. She's playing that villainess sort of character where everybody around her is sort of being manipulated, and um, then you she she begins to unravel whenever people are like, "Oh, there's a letter that was discovered where you had written to this man that you claimed was trying to rape you, and it actually says that you invited him over to your house." And then you see her try to, "Oh, okay, like how am I gonna get out of this one?" And it's just so fun to watch her. 
it's so fun to watch her expressions. It, like there's this thing that she does with her eyes that I always think about whenever she does in uh, whatever happened to baby Jane, where like she feels really bad for, um, uh, she feels really bad for Joan Crawford. And then she's starting to realize like, Oh my God, like people are going to find out what I'm doing to you. And then she realizes that she's still in control of, um, of Joan Crawford. And then she just immediately switches and her face switches. And then she looks evil and villainess once again. And I find that Betty Davis is so good at doing that with just her facial expressions, with her eyes. And uh, I mean, specifically to this performance, like, you know, I just love her. I, I, that's what people love about her is they love watching her be, evil they love watching her be the villain and try to squirm her way out of everything Mm -hmm. no i did definitely that the eye acting in this movie is really top drawer i mean there's Mm -hmm. just some some real like all-time hall of fame glowering between her and and the other woman um yeah i mean her like there's betty davis was famous for her eyes uh and she you know really puts them to full effect here there's like yeah there's a song called betty davis eyes Kim Um, and i was googling it because i was trying to remember who the song was by uh and i googled betty davis eyes and it took me to some weird like optometry website uh, <laughs> that was basically kind of diagnosing betty davis after the fact it suggested that she may have had graves disease a uh, a thyroid uh, immunological disorder that leads to swelling around the eye <laughs> oh my god if, really if true very sad um but Probably not true. Again, this is not an official source. This is just a weird website that I saw. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I think, um, oh, or not funny, but like that's that's interesting. Sorry, is what I meant to say. Not funny. <laughs> it's hilarious. She was suffering. Uh, but in the movie, you know, her character, her mood swings were giving me a bit of a whiplash near the end because her husband, for all reasons unknown, decides to essentially forgive her for not only the affair, but also for murder. And uh he's like you know as long as it's over and then she just basically says to him i mean it's over with this man like your love affair with this over the with this man that you killed and then she says with all my heart i still love the man that i killed and you're like oh my god like just let it go like that that became yeah exactly like exactly you won and so when i saw her get killed at the end i was like well if anything, that would just release you from your agony because you just simply can't be happy in your mm-hmm. in your life. And uh, I think, you know, I guess in the play she lives, but I think the better ending is that she dies because she'll just never be happy. Yeah, she may have brought this on herself just a tad. Um, but yeah, what a what a line read on that that final reveal, eh? Where she's kind of like facing away, and then she turns around with all my heart. I still love the man I killed. Yeah, right. Like that's, you know, give her, give her the woman an Oscar just for that one line. It's, no, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I, I really enjoyed sort of the cinematography of it where it's like they made the villain always wear all black. And then they made Betty Davis's character, Leslie, always in all white to make her seem so, you know, angelic and pure. But like she was actually the uh, evil villainess character. And it was always like through the light of the moon, it was like she was always protected because she, she was protected by her angelic, like blonde hair, like, you know, white superior sort of. And then whenever the the moon would be covered and she was in darkness, it was like that was when the things would happen to her. And that was when things because it was like she was no longer protected by her, I guess, in a 2021 lens, her whiteness. Mm hmm. 
and her privilege. So I I loved the cinematography of the movie as well. And um, I thought it was so funny whenever she left that party that was being thrown for her after she was acquitted. And then she's so stressed out that she has to go into her room for an emergency crocheting sesh. (laughs) (laughs) I guess hasn't had to decompress with a little bit of uh the ten thousand dollars that was used as ransom for the wife of the uh, murder victim would be worth about a hundred and seventy thousand dollars in today's money Mm, which is why that was so yeah which is why that was so significant and uh yeah i mean i i anyway if you guys have never seen the movie the letter it's so easy to find online i feel like it's probably on youtube uh highly recommend watching it one of betty davis's best and uh should check it out agreed do you have anything else that you'd like to add to her performance before we move on no all good okay so this one i am so curious what your thoughts are going to be on this one because whew, did i did not enjoy this movie and i'm prefacing it that way because this was a slog. It, it's it's in public domain, so it's easy to find, but it hasn't been remastered. So the audio is messed up. It was like I had to have subtitles on that were generated by YouTube to watch it. And it, that was kind of the only entertaining part because the subtitles were wrong. Let us talk about Martha Scott, a newcomer during this time in the movie called Our Town. Our Town. So, no, you were uh, right. This is, there's no other way to say it. This is an old ass movie old ass movie that is weird because these all these movies came out the same year (laughs) but it's weird to compare it to you know something like philadelphia story which feels very contemporary and Mm -hmm. fresh and modern Mm -hmm. but this is yeah undeniably old as hell old as hell and what to to, just to add insult to injury uh the movie takes place in like 1900 so it's like an old movie that takes place in an older time Mm -hmm. so it's like old on top of old and so uh martha scott is emily in this movie and she is the daughter of uh this very typical all-american family in a small town um and in this movie uh you know she meets um uh, William Holden, uh, who is sort of the literally the boy next door. And it's kind of their story of their life and the progress that they make of when they meet as teenagers to when they get married and have kids. And then she almost dies in childbirth. And then she has kind of like a, um, a Christmas Carol moment where there's like ghosts and she goes back in time. And uh, this is a very long movie. This is a, movie. a very long 90 minutes. <laughs> yes, this is a very long 90 minutes. It was uh, Emily, uh, Martha, Martha Scott, um, you know, is not really in the movie uh, at the very beginning. Uh, and she doesn't really come into the movie about like 20, 30 minutes in. Uh, I think I wrote down at one point, 45 minutes into the movie. And Martha Scott has maybe had three scenes. Um, okay. What did okay? What did you think about this movie? This I'm gonna be honest, man. This one went in one eye and out the other. Um, yeah, <laughs> was, I will. It, I will say that I was kind of watched this in a hungover New Year's Day fugue state, right? Kind of drifting in and out of consciousness. So yeah, it was. You know, I was at one point they were sitting around the kitchen table talking about marriage. Then I kind of drifted off, and then there were ghosts later mm-hmm. on in the movie. Uh, I, I feel like I didn't do it because this is I was curious about this one because this is a play that it was based on. This is a very famous uh, American play. It's sort of like a staple of community theaters. Um, mm-hmm. It's, you know, I think it won the Pulitzer Prize. It's very beloved. Um, 
think a big part of that is it, it is sort of a, a very kind of simple um, portrayal of this sort of pastoral, you know, middle American town at the turn of the century. You know, it's very bucolic, uh, lots of homespun wisdom, uh, but also the way that the play is presented is is very modern. It's like the the theater manager is almost the main character and he kind of comes out and talks to the audience as like, Oh, hello there. Let me show you this little sketch and this little sketch. And it's kind right. of presented on a bare stage mm-hmm. uh, with no setting. So it feels, you know, kind of uh, modern and exciting, but also accessible in a way that, you know, any audience can, can connect with. Well, yeah. Cause it's um, about so, like small town America. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, you know, one could argue that maybe it should have stayed in that format that maybe it did not, translates uh to film super well right um but yeah it's it's a lot of you know it's not super uh heavy on incident it is a lot of uh Mm. stuff about this young couple kind of getting married and and the the people in their life sort of giving them hard-fought wisdom Mm. um yeah it's very very quaint to our 21st century eyes well so Frank Craven, who was the narrator of the movie, actually helped Thornton Weiler, who won the Pulitzer Prize for this play, adapt it into a screenplay for film. And the biggest change was that in the end, uh, uh, Martha Scott's character, Emily, survives the childbirth. But in the movie, she or in the movie, in the play, sorry, she dies. And a lot of people felt that that actually kind of ruined the movie and its intent. And I would have to agree with that because that would have been and you were talking about there weren't really a lot of it incidents in the movie that would have made the movie a lot more interesting because you're right it's just kind of about nothing and it's kind of about like everything like there was one moment where i was like wow can i get more random facts about this town that i don't care about (laughs) he would just cut like the narrator um uh frank craven would just come in and he would just be like in this town, there are three town drunks and two of them. And, you know, and you're just like, I really don't care. Like, I just am not invested in this at all. I mean, of all the movies, this was obviously my my least favorite. But I have to say that I thought of all the movies, uh, the coolest, most interesting part was when you see the ghosts of all of her dead family members. And she uh, like the cinematography in that I thought was like really, really interesting. I think that the most interesting acting from her is when she goes back in time as like a ghost, whatever spirit. And she sees her mother and her family in the kitchen. And uh, she's reacting to this fond memory that she has and how she wishes that she could go back there. And the ghosts are like, don't go back to happy memories because it's too painful. And, um, that I thought was interesting that I thought was kind of entertaining. Uh, But overall, like this movie, I think there's a reason why it was never remastered and it was never part of, you know, film history. It has fallen out of the conversation to put it mildly. Yeah. I can imagine this would have played like gangbusters. If this was, if this was your small town, if you saw yourself in these characters. Um, Yeah. It's interesting that, that she, she dies at the end of the play. Do we think that this is maybe the, the Hayes code rearing its head again? Hmm. Or was this kind of a, you know, just a, a decision was made that it was too big of a bummer. Mm. I, I don't know. Um, I think, you know, you were talking about the lack of incidents. Uh, I wrote down that I thought that the biggest conflict between Emily and uh, uh, Bill Holden is <laughs> baseball. 
and uh women uh can be perfect compared to men because they're nervous and like she was nervous that he was playing but like and she didn't want him to play baseball like i was like is this the conflict in the movie is that he plays baseball too much i'm like you're you're working with a small town like you're even talking about town drunks you're mm-hmm. talking about like there are <laughs> there are things that we could play with here that would be a lot more interesting than you know his biggest issue is he that he plays too much baseball um re- really boring i didn't care about anyone or anything going on um i think that the only kind of incident that i saw as well was whenever she seemed kind of like oh fuck like whenever they were married like perhaps she had made a mistake or maybe she had chosen the wrong man and um i just i cannot honestly say like why i would care about this movie any of the characters or specifically to her performance like yeah sure like she did what the director wanted her to do but there wasn't any specific moment that i was like wow and i just it was so forgettable to me that, um, you know, she also was a newcomer. Uh, she had a screen test for Melanie Wilkes Booth in uh, Gone with the Wind, and she had a very poor screen test for that. And she was, like, apparently known in Hollywood for her poor screen test for this film. I don't know. <laughs> um, but she shone in the movie Our Town. Um, yeah, I, I a very forgettable performance i'm sorry martha scott and a very forgettable film and i the only thing that i thought was really funny was at one point my auto-generated subtitles um auto-corrected or like it 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 thought that the name grover's corners which is the name of the town it auto-corrected it to um groper's corners (laughs) (laughs) and i that made me laugh and that was really the only entertaining part of this entire film that's a very different movie entirely. I'd watch that movie. <laughs> the uh, uncle from yeah. Philadelphia story could have his own narrative in that one. <laughs> yeah, not a whole lot to recommend here. Um, I'm glad that I picked this one to half sleep through uh, during my hangover. <laughs> I will share this tidbit from IMDb that I thought was fun. So the poster for the movie has the tagline, the screen's most unusual picture. And then the trivia section says the poster advertising for this film made it sound as if it were a tense psychological melodrama about yeah. its characters, which it most certainly wasn't. <laughs> no, it certainly was a, not. A little bit of clapback from IMDb there. I that's really funny. I I love that. Um, okay, so do you have anything else that you would like to add to Martha Scott's performance in Our Town before we move on? Nope. Good. Good riddance. Good riddance, I have to agree. Uh, Okay, so let's talk about Joan Fontaine in the movie Rebecca. So when I was watching this movie, I was like, Joan Fontaine, Joan Fontaine. I'm like, why do I know the name Joan Fontaine? Because I'm like, was it a movie that I watched or something? And no, it's because uh, in the TV show Feud, which I've seen a million times, Olivia de Havilland is being interviewed in this, like, you know, uh, she's being played by uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones. And uh, at one point they're like, she talks about her sister and they're like, Joan Fontaine is your younger sister. And she's like, well, she's not that much younger than me, but yes. And there was this moment at the Oscars where I guess Joan Fontaine, after Olivia de Havilland had won her Oscar, I guess did not acknowledge her sister uh, at the Academy Awards. And this was big, 
controversial news and it was in all the gossip papers. And then she argues, she's like, I did not ignore my sister. I just simply didn't notice that she was there. And that's why <laughs> I knew the name Joan Fontaine. And I was like, oh, it's Olivia de Havilland's sister. And they were apparently very competitive. And Joan Fontaine, uh, this was, you know, she's a new face. And uh, mm -hmm. this was, uh, it's really funny because they actually originally wanted Olivia de Havilland for this role in the movie Rebecca. And uh, when Joan Fontaine got it, I'm sure that probably really bothered Olivia de Havilland and, uh, you know, got an Oscar nomination out of it. And um, uh, I, I always find those kinds of little feuds very, very interesting. You know, maybe feud season two will be about Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland. Who knows? That's but, a great, yeah, that was the, uh, the, the Betty Davis show, right? Yeah, with uh, Joan Crawford. Yeah, I feel like they they could make those shows indefinitely. Yeah, would... the more the more IMDb trivia I read, the more delicious feuds I uncover. Yes, absolutely. Um, so okay, Joan Joan Fontaine in the movie Rebecca. So they just did a remake uh, with uh, Ar Army Hammer, which we're only thinking Silence of the Lambs these days. Uh, and because uh, he apparently likes to eat people, uh, in case anybody <laughs> other what, yeah, in case anybody didn't know that, Google it. Uh, but okay, so Rebecca is yeah directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It is on YouTube. It's uh, public domain. It's an amazing movie. I would highly recommend watching this. It's uh, the tension is built up so beautifully, and basically, uh, Joan Fontaine is like this lower class woman who is uh, on vacation with a rich woman, and then meets uh, Laurence Olivier, who is extremely rich, and then they fall in love, and then you find out that his ex-wife, Rebecca, uh, is dead, and that he can never give up the memory or the ghost of his ex-wife named Rebecca. And uh, a lot of suspicion and uh, intrigue builds up as you find out that there was mysterious circumstances to her death, and... Uh, how Joan Fontaine has to adjust to a life as a really rich person and how she doesn't feel comfortable with it. And then wackiness and domineering ensues. housekeeper, Mrs. Danvers, who's kind of yes. lurking about and giving her grief all the time because she can't measure up to the, the previous Mrs. De Winter. <laughs> and then in the end, she dies. Uh, <laughs> That's great. Um, yep. Yeah, Rebecca, the titular character, is dead uh, the, the, during the whole movie, but her presence mm -hmm. basically is hanging over every scene and, and, and no one can let her go. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, you find out that uh, that she she died under tragic circumstances, and that kind of uh, throws a wrench in in this sort of new marriage. And she kind of goes from being this innocent, naive woman to kind of taking a hand in in negotiating the cover up. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really really fun. Um, and uh, I was interested to learn because this is based on a, a famous novel, also. Mm -hmm. Um, and here we see our old friend, the Hayes Code, rearing its ugly head again, uh, because in the oh. novel, the twist is that Lawrence Olivier's character, uh, Mr. De Winter, killed Rebecca, he oh. killed his wife uh, in like a fit of rage and then covered it up. Whereas in the movie, um, it's an accidental death. She kind of they're having a fight and she slips and hits her head. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it kind of changes the, the story a little bit. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, in, in spite of that, I mean, it's still, this movie rules so hard. It's such mm -hmm. a, a, a dark, gothic delight, uh, and everybody's at their creepy best. Absolutely. I mean, it won Best Picture. Mm -hmm. And um, just the way that Alfred Hitchcock really builds the tension in the movie, it's so beautifully done. This was such an easy watch, 
easy to get into, um, you know, because obviously, you know, for example, like the Philadelphia story, you know, a lot of it is so dated that, you know, it was very difficult for me to either care about a lot of the characters or even really understand like their perspective or perhaps why they were acting the way that they were. Where in this movie, it's just like it's such a classic where it's just like you fully understand everyone's point of view. And again, like I just really love the cinematography and um, oh, just gorgeous. a s- side note, uh, Joan Fontaine actually won the Academy Award for Best Actress the following year for Suspicion, also directed by Alfred Hitchcock, as for some people believe a um, bit of a uh like a consolation for, you know, losing this Oscar because people and critics thought that she was really wonderful in this. I mean, I think that where I thought that Joan Fontaine's character was uh, really shining for me was whenever she just felt like she didn't belong to Laurence Olivier's world and his privilege and his wealth. And she always just felt very uncomfortable. And she always just like, didn't, she was afraid of that, that house uh, woman that you were just speaking about. I forgot her name. Miss Danvers. Miss um, Danvers. Yeah. And, and she, she was afraid of her. And I, I loved the way that they maintained that until she finally goes like, get rid of all this stuff. And she stands up to her sort of near the end. And then you see that change in her character. But I love the way that she maintained uh, just the uh, way that she just, didn't fit into the puzzle like everybody else. And it was very, very uh, believable. And then in the end, I thought it was also very interesting when you find out that like, she just believes Laurence Olivier uh, that he actually didn't kill her and that she was, what was it threatening to, to God, what would discredit him? Like a Rebecca was threatening to discredit him or something and ruin his reputation. So and then she was dying of cancer. I was okay. One thing I that I thought was unclear: why did Rebecca hate Lawrence Olivier, and why was she fucking her cousin? She was yeah. She was having an affair with the cousin, and she had become pregnant from the cousin, and she was basically threatening to you know have the child and and raise it as if it was theirs. But you know she would know the truth, and and it just kind of drove him crazy. I see. And so that was the cousin was George Sanders and he kept saying Toodaloo, which I thought <laughs> and love like that. Appearing in a win- and like coming in through the window. Yeah. Like a neighbor in a sitcom. <laughs> Lit- like literally. Just popping um, in and out. What a delight. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Lawrence Olivier uh, really wanted Vivian Lee uh, as the lead instead of Joan Fontaine because at the time they were a couple. And apparently a Lawrence, Lawrence Olivier was a fucking asshole to Joan Fontaine on set. And uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, told, like, loved that he hated her because um, it added to her character being shy and uneasy. So he, like, encouraged it, which just always adds to, like, I feel kind of bad for actors and actresses because they're kind of being manipulated by the puppet master, the director, sometimes, mm-hmm. like, psychologically tormenting them in a way. To... I read that he that he took it a step further and told her that everyone on set hated her yes. to make her even more shy and uneasy because that was the the performance that he wanted, which is wild to to think of how much uh, old movie making now is just we recognize it's just psychological abuse. Oh, a hundred percent. And I just think I'm like God. Like they could just get away with anything back then, you know. Hey man, um, you don't win an Oscar without breaking a few human psyches. Yeah, absolutely. Um I will say though if anybody uh, if you're thinking cuz they did have the Netflix 
uh, version that just came out. I would actually recommend watching this version uh, over the Netflix version because I got, I want to say 20, 30 minutes into the Netflix version and I turned it off. This, I watched the whole thing through. I loved it. It's so much better than the remake. And uh, I very much recommend uh, you checking this movie out. It's on YouTube. So def- definitely check it out. Um, also, there this was the first. No excuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, also, this was the watchable. first. Uh, this was the first film with uh, Alfred Hitchcock and David O. Selznick. Oh yeah, famous uh, maniac producer. <laughs> uh, which I, I I feel like they did not get along on this one. Hmm. Oh yeah, no, they did not because I don't think that they understood. Because obviously, uh, Alfred Hitchcock is a perfectionist, and perhaps David O. Selznick did not see his vision until the final product. Right. Which um, they said that about James Cameron as well with Aliens, the production crew that in the UK uh, that actually made with Ridley Scott the original Alien uh, when James Cameron came in. Uh, and he's obviously quite he was an unknown director at that time because what was it? The Terminator hadn't come out yet. And uh, people were like, what the fuck? And they hated working with him. But then, you know, you see the final product and you're like, oh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know uh, uh, Hitchcock, because he was very concerned about Selznick, you know, taking the movie away from him. And so he would kind of, while he was shooting, he would edit in camera, basically, like he wouldn't shoot coverage like he normally would. He would just shoot exactly what he needed so that he couldn't have it, you know, taken away from him and, and re-edited later, later down the road. He oh, I just, see. Like, I'm just going to shoot exactly the movie I want. And then that's all you get. Interesting. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Um. So, yeah, I... The, I mean, I think that Joan Fontaine was fantastic in this movie. She was the right choice. The only part for me that I thought was just kind of funny was whenever um, she would be crying. And this is really a this is more on the director, but she would be crying and she would do this thing where she would to demonstrate that her character was uh, in turmoil and distress. And so she would have these tears going down her face, but she would hold a pose you know, very dramatic, very, dr- and she would hold a pose and just stare longingly like into the distance. And she would have like this close up and stuff like that. And again, of course, that's a director's choice. But I, I thought that was that was very, very funny because overall, I loved her performance. And I uh, but that was whenever she would be crying and um, she would be like, oh, you should jump out the window and kill yourself. Just do it. Just do it. You know, and then she just has that that ridiculous look on her face and she's she's contemplating and she's not moving and it's like she, it's like a computer like you know rebooting and she's just processing the information i thought that was really really funny although i was unclear as to why the house woman the lady lady of the house like why did she want her to kill herself because she preferred rebecca so much yeah she, i think she just couldn't measure up she's yeah a very domineering woman and she wants things in the house to be just so and and this this new you know a woman coming into the house kind of throws her her plans into disarray. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, classic schemer stuff. <laughs> yeah, they really made her feel like shit, though, because Joan Fontaine's like, oh, how would you describe Rebecca to, like, the house staff? And they were like, I suppose that she was the most beautiful woman I've <laughs> ever seen. She's like, cool, 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 cool. <laughs> like, yeah, she sounds great. Yeah, oh, wow. Um. Yeah, great performance from Joan Fontaine, uh, although... Real tears uh, because she was really being terrorized. So maybe, you know, maybe it wasn't a great performance. Maybe it was just. Yeah. <laughs> it looked like jelly coming down her face, like Vaseline or something. <laughs> um, She, 
was very calm whenever a Laurence Olivier was basically like, uh, I wanted to kill her because of the way that I suppose Rebecca was uh, driving him mad. She seemed very calm with it and okay with it. Um, I hate loved the way that Laurence Olivier came off as a good guy and a bad guy because I suppose the audience that's supposed to throw you. But in the end, yeah, Joan Fontaine's character was like, oh, like, no, I'm supporting him 100%. I believe that she did try to kill herself. And uh, personally, I wouldn't. I'd be like, no, you killed her. Uh, Which, as I guess you said that in the book, he actually did kill her, right? Mm -hmm, Yeah. Yes. So that's kind of more sense here that she kind of falls in line behind him and and tries to cover her ass. But also she's kind of like a, you know, a middle class. She's working a shit job and then Mm -hmm. is kind of rescued and and whisked away by this rich guy. And so, yeah, she kind of gets corrupted a little bit and she's like, yeah, I'm going to do whatever I have to to do to keep a good thing going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, No, I mean, fantastic film. One of uh, one of Alfred Hitchcock's best. It's on YouTube. Uh, I highly recommend uh, watching it. And Joan Fontaine and Olivia de Havilland are the only two sisters to have ever won, to have both won an Oscars for lead acting performances. Oh, that's so interesting. Well, you know, okay, so Rooney, is it Rooney Mara, the one from Carol? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the girl. With... <laughs> yeah, they are also sisters that were in. Because Kate Mara, I'm not sure if that's her name, but she was in Brokeback. So, you know, she had these sort of dramatic roles and she was in like a lot of movies. But now I think she went over to television. Like the last thing I think I saw her in was House of Cards. Yeah, she's in season one of uh, House of Cards. That's right. Yeah. And also uh, she was in the first season of American Horror Story as well. Um, I think that was the last time that I saw her. Um, But who knows? Maybe she'll win an Oscar because I know that obviously Rudy Mara is a two-time Oscar nominee who is married to Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, Okay, so do you have anything else that you would like to add to Joan Fontaine's performance before we move on? Nope, great movie. Great movie. Uh, Okay, let us talk about the winner uh, in 1941, uh, Ginger Rogers for Kitty Foyle. Now, um, Kitty Foyle uh, is a very, at the time, modern sort of woman because this is a woman choosing her own happiness over accommodating men and their happiness because she doesn't want in the end to be married to this super rich you know high society man because she wants to maintain the integrity of who she is as a woman and who she is as a person and she actually doesn't end up being with the man that she was the most in love with because she wants to be herself and live the life that she wants to live so i'm sure for the time that was a very empowering narrative for women and uh at the beginning it's so i love i thought it was so funny i'm assuming this was a comedy moment where they show the like when before Im- women got equal rights to vote and it was like this woman on a streetcar in the early 1900s and everyone's like oh ma'am would you like to sit here and please take a seat and then she was like oh thank you and then they were like and then women got to vote and then they just show this woman in like modern time being shoved around on the streetcar like get out of the way you ugly woman and <laughs> yeah, she's like oh <laughs> I'm assuming that was supposed to be a joke, right? Like that I was imagine so. <laughs> it's really funny. And um uh at the very beginning when they were talking about uh I think there was a needle point at the very beginning. I think that they were trying to say equal rights was for women to vote and I think that in the needle point it said vote 
but it looked like points or you know what i mean like in the like in the in the writing yeah no i know you this is this was one thing that struck me immediately so this was a a dalton trumbo script and he was like one of the most (laughs) beloved screenwriters you know in hollywood history so i saw that i was like this is gonna be good and then yeah in the first five minutes there is a almost comedic amount of like text on screen (laughs) title cards like reading challenges reading challenges like very sort of text spilling onto a second page like being the story of a modern woman and therefore it gets <laughs> us to depict her in the, the turn of the century like just so overwritten yeah like come on dalton you gotta cut the chase here <laughs> but i just i i swear to god because it wasn't great quality that i was watching it looked like it didn't say vote it looked like it said bort you know, like yep, a board license. Very, may well have. Dalton Trumbo was a famous boozer, so he, yeah. <laughs> he very well could have been bored. I was like, is that a board? We need, we're out of board license plates. I loved it. <laughs> My son um, is also named Bort. Yeah. <laughs> so Ginger Rogers in the character is Kitty Foyle, the, the title character, and she's torn between two men. And one of them is her boss in Philadelphia, and he's super, super rich. And she's a white collar middle class woman who, uh, you know, is uh, caught up in the love affair with him. Uh, but then ultimately, like the, their love affair, like wouldn't work because she doesn't fit into that lifestyle and nor does she want to fit into that lifestyle because she just wants to be herself. And then she meets a doctor who is really weird. And then she ends up, I guess, like with him in the end and they get married. Uh, but the whole movie is kind of based in flashbacks of essentially why she chooses not to go with the rich guy from Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. And she gazes um, into a crystal ball and, and thinks about <laughs> her entire life. Yes. And I love when she's talking to her reflection, but um, up until this point, and this is such a similar narrative that, you know, um, listeners you've heard on this podcast before we had this with Sandra Bullock. We had this with, um, uh, with uh, Reese Witherspoon, where Ginger Rogers at this point was really known for her, uh, you know, romantic comedy roles and musicals and things with Fred Astaire. And so uh, people were not expecting her in this role to be dramatic. And of course, she's Sean and she won. She had no idea that she was going to win. She genuinely didn't think that she would. And uh, she was genuinely shocked in her Oscar speech. She's like, I can't believe I'm holding this in my hand right now, but I am. So that's great. Um, and uh, uh, she definitely had the narrative going for her, which I think is, is a lot of uh, what goes into these wins is, yeah, she was beloved already for these, these Fred Astaire musicals and um, I rom-coms. Think she, I think she, yeah. Rom-coms. I think she said at one point, this is a paraphrase, but uh, you know, I, I had to do everything he did, but backwards and in high heels. Right. Um, and yes. so, yeah, we all loved her for that. And so this is her, showing a new side of herself and people weren't sure if she could pull it off and she did. And so that, you know, she has the the narrative working in her favor. Now you had talked about the Hayes code again. I'm so glad that you brought that up because originally Ginger Rogers was extremely reluctant to take on this role because I suppose in the book uh, there was an abortion scene. Um, she oh. becomes pregnant. Yeah. And she doesn't actually have the uh, Philadelphia boss's baby uh, in the movie she does, but because of the Hayes code, Uh, They wouldn't allow it because so she was Ginger Rogers was going to turn down the role. And then her mother was like, just wait for the script because they wouldn't allow that scene on a movie. So then when she saw the script, that's why she agreed to it. Right. That makes sense. 
Um, there is, oh, I forgot to mention about Rebecca. So Rebecca, uh, this in Spain was a huge, huge hit that the jacket that she wears still to this day is called a Rebecca. It's a type of clothing. And in this movie, Kitty Foyle, uh, the dress with long sleeves with a white or a crew collar, uh, and cuffs, uh, that is called a Kitty Foyle dress. Yeah, that's like this movie's kind of legacy, I guess, is this iconic look. Um, Yeah, the bulk of the movie is basically her uh, trying to choose between these two guys, these two drips, it should be said, these two (laughs) huge losers. Um, But yeah, she meets this this doctor at one point. Uh, There's this thing where she's working in a department store and she pulls the fire alarm or something by accident and pretends that she's fainted to avoid consequences. Mm-hmm. And the, the hot doctor shows up and he's basically like, uh, he sees that she's faking and she's like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm going to have to give you a shot of this stimulant unless you go on a date with me. <laughs> oh, right. And it's, again, not to keep harping on this this stuff, we're not canceling anybody, but like, Jesus Christ, it's so weird to watch. <laughs> this man uh, basically yeah. threatening her with a, an injection. Unless <laughs> and then when they go on the date... He just shows up at her apartment and won't leave. Yeah, that's right. Forces and the, the roommates to hang out in the bathroom. <laughs> like this guy is so insufferable. They had to play a uh, two person solitaire. It's like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So weird. Um, Red flags all the way down. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and then, then that's the guy that she ends up marrying in the end. Mm-hmm. Uh, which I thought was very funny. Um, just one more fact about this movie that I had seen. So Catherine Hepburn was actually offered the role of this movie and she had turned it down, which according to her public narrative, that was probably the smart move. Um, but immediately I was so much more invested in this story uh, because her character of all of them kind of seemed for the time the most modern. And I felt that she had her own thoughts and ideas and her character wasn't just necessarily always reactionary toward the men in her life. It seemed like she was the main character of her own narrative where I find that a lot of these movies, it's completely surrounded by the men uh, except for maybe in the letter and in this as well, uh, which I thought that was a little bit refreshing for the time, or at least for me watching these movies, it was a little bit refreshing. Um, and personally, if I was Kitty Foyle, I would pick the the Philadelphia guy over uh, because, I mean, they're like, oh, you need to take classes. And, you know, remember when she loses it on the family uh, where she's like, no, like, I will not change who I am just to fit into your society. Like, but like, why not? Like, <laughs> I, I would like I would just take the lessons and have like the life of comfort and luxury. Like, I mean, I realized that that's the whole point is that she wouldn't. And that's the whole point of Kitty Foyle. I get it. But for me as an audience member, I'm like, fuck that. I would, I would rather live high society Philadelphia than be living in a shoebox in New York, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, I think she could have done better than, than these two chumps. I think she yeah. <laughs> kept looking. Which, by the way, I, I feel like all of these guys were indistinguishable to me. Everybody had the same hair. Yes. In the 1940s, it was just like slicked back to within an inch of its life, like parted with a ruler. I, I spent all of the Philadelphia story just staring at Cary Grant's part. I know. It's the greatest part I've ever seen. And Catherine Hepburn, too. She had that wild part that went all the way back to like the cranium. Like, mm. 
you know what? I, I was like, was that just like hot back then? And also in Katie Foyle, because this is almost like a bit of a Joan Crawford thing that she had in Mildred Pierce, where it's like you have like a cauliflower of bangs on your entire head, followed by long straight hair that is met at the bottom with like almost like a waterfall that lands on the rocks and then makes like big giant curls of hair. So it's like big curly hair on top, straight all the way to the back. And then at the bottom, it's just like an, a, like a, a mane of curls. And this was so fucking hot back in the day. Uh, yeah, I, they don't make them like they used to. <laughs> I, I loved it, though. It's so it just seems so cartoonish now, you know, but for mm. the time, of course, this was, you know, really hot. Um I don't know if you noticed, but when Ginger Rogers is, uh, when Kitty Foyle, uh, she's selling perfume to that customer. That was actually Edith from Rebecca, the woman that was like paying Rebecca to like be her companion throughout Europe. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that was Edith. Uh, And I I thought that was kind of, uh, I just, I noticed her immediately. And um, I love watching Kitty Foyle. Yeah, whenever she squares off with the family, with uh, the Philadelphia guy's family. That's a bold move, a little awkward to watch because you're like, oh, my God, because the family was actually pretty reasonable because you fully understood their perspective. They weren't coming off as snobbish, in my opinion. They were like, you know, like if you're married into this family, it comes with responsibilities. It comes with its own lifestyle and you need to be educated in how that works, which apparently is better than what Meghan Markle got. If you saw the Oprah special whenever she married into the royal family, because she thought there would be oh, some no. sort of training or some sort of a like Cole's notes or how to be royal for dummies. And there just simply wasn't. She was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Where yeah, I can't Kitty- imagine they made life easy for her. Well, I'm sure they did not want her to be there at all. You right. know, it's commoner. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure they um, were rooting for her to fail. Yeah, but um, Katie Foyle, you know, Ginger Rogers, it, it was that sort of typical, like, she made me laugh, she made me cry. She carries the picture so well. And I find that with 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 uh, comedy, with comedy queens, you know, it's like you have, um, it's like, okay, comedy people can do drama, but drama people, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can do comedy. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and I would argue that not all comedy people can do drama. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's a rare performer who can nail both. Well, you know who I, in modern times, just simply, and she does a really good job, don't get me wrong, but I personally cannot take her seriously in dramatic roles, Kristen Wiig. Yeah, that's fair. It's because she's so silly in her, and we, we know her from these insanely broad SNL characters and from stuff yeah. like Barb and Star, Go to Vista Del Mar. Which great movie, it, amazing movie. Amazing. But then it is very hard to see her in The Martian as like a serious NASA scientist. Yeah, I know. Or I haven't seen her in Wonder Woman, but I can't see her as a villain in a superhero franchise. Like oh, I just, God, it's so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think she was nominated for a Razzie for Worst Supporting Actress, so that doesn't surprise me. Um. Oh my gosh, though, I just simply fell in love with Ginger Rogers in this movie, and I will actually be definitely watching more of her films, and I'm really looking forward to it. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a delight. Um, do you have anything else that you would like to add to her performance before we select who we think that the Oscar should have gone to? Not about her performance, but Kitty Foyle was directed by Sam Wood, who also directed Our Town. So busy year for that. <laughs> Ooh, Redeemer Award for him. Yeah, he really bounced back. Absolutely. Um, Okay, so you are the guest. So uh, please go ahead and uh, let us know who you select as best actress. Yeah, I think the Oscars should have gone to 
Catherine Hepburn. And I will say this with a, a few caveats. One is that I know she has like four or five Oscars already. She doesn't need any more. Yeah. <laughs> but this is a thought exercise. We're not actually giving her an Oscar, so it doesn't matter. Uh, and also, I don't think that this is like the 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 most um, the realest performance. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like there are so many more. Like Joan Fontaine and Rebecca is very sort of in psychological and captured the interiority of the character. But I don't know. I I just have such affection for this movie because I saw it when I was in high school, and it just she really lodged in my brain as like this is a classic golden age of Hollywood comedy performance. And I think she's so larger than life and she totally nails the, the comedy of it and the transition into pathos and, and depth and humanity. Um, and it's just so fun. It's so fun to watch. I That's so interesting. A lot of people were saying that it really should have been Catherine Hepburn and, um, uh, and even Catherine Hepburn felt that as well. And apparently they had like a bit of a rivalry uh, where um, she would be Ginger Rogers would show up in like a mink coat and then Catherine Hepburn would be like, oh, if it's real mink, then I could just dump a bunch of water on you and it won't shrink. And then <laughs> she would just go over to her and just dump a whole bunch of water on her. So I feel like maybe Catherine Hepburn was always a little resentful toward Ginger Rogers for this win, That's perhaps. So rude. I know. Yeah. Like, who knows? But uh, um Okay, well, I, I I love that. I find that very uh, interesting. And uh, I, I'm honestly kind of a little surprised to hear you say Catherine Hepburn. Uh, but I, I love that. Okay. Um, okay, so I think that the Oscar should have gone to... Ginger Rogers for Kitty Foyle. I always love a comedy queen. I always love seeing somebody transition from that sort of mold of what they were known for and what they're expected. And then they totally turn around and do something that is dramatic. And of all the performances, this was the most interesting to me. It was the one that was most engaging. And I felt like I understood every aspect of her character where some of the other performances, I just kind of was like, what or why or okay. And I felt like a product of the time or something like that. But this movie felt like a product of its time, but it also felt modern. And I think that Ginger Rogers was probably the best choice for this type of character because comedy, when you are taught, comedy language is very, um, what's the expression? Layman's terms, where it's like you just talk like a regular person. It's not like the, oh, I love you. I do. Will we be married forever? Please tell me we will get married. Like no one talks like that. And Kitty Foyle mm. in this movie, it's like she talks like a regular person. She has her own choices. She maintains her integrity. And um, I just loved the storyline. And I just, she was shocked that she won. But when I watched all of these movies, I'm like, no, like she's my pick to win. And I'm not surprised she won at all. So I'm really, really excited. And I'm so grateful, Denny, that you picked this year because uh, I kind of have like a little Ginger Rogers crush and I'm just like really excited to watch more of her movies. So thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. No, she's a delight. And she, yeah, absolutely well-deserved. Um, yeah, a really top-notch year. I, I'm I'm always surprised when I, you know, go back and revisit these older Oscar categories because it's usually just kind of a, a lineup of stinkers. And, yeah. and maybe one gem. But this was, aside from our town, this was a pretty rock solid lineup. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Martha Scott. That was her first and only Oscar nomination. But hey, she'll always be an Oscar nominee. <laughs>
Okay, so um, that concludes another episode of Best Actress. Um, everybody listening, please uh, leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think. Uh, tell people to listen to this. Tell your gays. Uh, and Dan, uh, where can people find you on social media? Um, I'm uh, Follow me on Letterboxd. Uh, that's basically the only social media I'm using at this point. I love it. What is Letterboxd? That's like the social media site for movies. Oh, okay. I got to check out Letterboxd. And is there like a handle that people can find you on Letterboxd? D-Dill. D-Dill. There we go. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. Uh, We'll definitely have to have you back again. And we'll see you next time. Bye.